Good morning. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to our Heavenly Father. So if you were uh, if you were in the services or a first responder, I'd like to thank you also, dads, for your extra measure of sacrifice. So as we get started this morning, do we have any golfers in the room? Anybody play golf? All right, good. So if I was to ask you to explain to us what a mulligan was, what would you say? A do-over? A do-over? Yeah, do-over is a good, a good uh, one-word definition. So maybe, maybe you went out on the green and, or on the, on the tee and you lined up thinking you were going to slice a hook like you always do, kind of a little bit, pins over there. But that lesson you took actually paid off and you hit the ball nice and straight right onto the next fairway. Not the one you were shooting at, but the one over there. So you might turn to your people that you're golfing with and say, uh, can I have a mulligan? So I can have a do-over. So I'm preaching this morning because Steve and Jolene asked for a mulligan <laughs> on their vacation they had in January and February. So we've all you know, walked them through that time, but their vacation turned into you know, hospital stay and hospice time and eventually three memorial services for Margaret and Marvin Miller and an aunt on Steve's side of the family. So for the remainder of June and July, they're, do, they're doing a do-over on their vacation. And they're doing fine. They're, um, they're just getting rejuvenated because they, they had a really hard January, February. So who am I? Um, I'm an elder here at, at Harvest Church. I've been an elder for a number of years and a member for a number of years before that. And married 44 years this summer, next month actually. So thank you. And, and I would like to say that I married well. God provided me a wife that was just abundantly beyond what I could ask or think, if I could paraphrase Ephesians 3. I have three beautiful daughters, um, married to seven grandkids, uh, four grandsons, and three uh, beautiful granddaughters. Three of the grandsons are uh, arriving uh, this afternoon from Washington, so that's going to be fun. So for you dads today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out give you a dad joke. I have an O'Hagan family favorite, one that made my mom laugh. You could tell it to her over and over. She would always laugh, you know, just like right after one after another, she'd still laugh. And it begins with a question. Why did the elephant? So I'm going to leave you hanging there for a minute and uh, talk about some other things because I want you to imagine the rest, of that, the rest of that joke. Why did the elephant? So we'll let that simmer for a minute. So I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of why questions today and trying to get you to imagine try to get you to imagine your relationship um, with your Heavenly Father and with Jesus. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by asking you, why are these birds so colorful? We're going to see some slides here in a minute of a few birds. So we got a couple of very colorful parrots, and then I've got a duck that's just magnificent. Why are these birds so colorful? And then one that's just really showing off in advertising, I am just absolutely wonderful, is the peacock. So in the last few years, we've been, we've been told over and over to trust the science. And that may mean different things to different people, but... So as I was preparing this lesson, I asked myself, what would science, how would science answer this question, why are these birds so colorful? So I just did a little Google search and picked uh, an, an answer from the University of Chicago. The origin of life on Earth 
stands as one of the great mysteries of science. Various answers have been proposed, all of which remain unverified. To find out if we are alone in the galaxy, we need to better understand what geochemical conditions nurtured the first life forms, what water, chemistry, and temperature cycles fostered the chemical reactions that allowed life to emerge on our planet. Because life arose in a largely unknown surface conditions, that's the little statement of humility there from the scientists, largely unknown surface conditions of Earth's early history, answering these questions and other questions remains a challenge. So we could keep, keep going and get a long drawn out answer to that question, but science calls that the theory of evolution. Life emerged from a process we don't understand under largely unknown conditions, and there was no God, there was no creator, there was no heavenly father required. But what does the Bible tell us? We're all familiar with the creation story found in Genesis chapter one, so I'm just gonna read a portion of that that relates to sea life and birds. In Genesis 1, 20 through 23, and God said, let that sink in for a minute, God said, what did he say? Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And it was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So why did God make these birds so colorful? I think, you know, maybe for the older generation, you might remember going to movies and the big broad letters across the bottom that said, this movie's gonna be in Technicolor. And just like, oh, I don't know what Technicolor is, that's better than the color movie I saw last week, but it's a big advertisement. These birds are saying, you have a creator. It didn't just happen. That kind of diversity doesn't just happen. We have a creator. And he wanted to say it loudly. Romans 1.20 tells us this. For his, that's God the Father, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the things that have been made point us to him so that we were without excuse. If these birds could speak, they might say, look at my beautiful colors. That's what the peacock says, right? look at me. He walks around saying, look at me. But he would also say, we have been made in the image of a heavenly father. We're not created from some geochemical process that took millions of years of time. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's no confusion there. That's what God did. And creation is his witness every day. You know, we could, we could go on and on and we could look at mammals, we could look at, at sea creatures, we could look at insects, plant life, we could look at the landscape. It all says there was a creator. So I'm gonna go back to a minute that first verse that I almost quoted when I started. Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So I'm gonna ask you to imagine today, you're still thinking about an elephant maybe, 
I'm going to ask you to take our Heavenly Father out of the limitations we put him in and see if he can accomplish more in our hearts than we could possibly ask or think. So let's practice for a minute. I'm going to go back to my joke. Why did the elephant stand on the marshmallow? So you have to imagine that, an elephant standing on a marshmallow. Can you picture it? Why did the elephant stand on a marshmallow? So that he wouldn't fall into the hot chocolate. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we often don't see ourselves as unique like these birds. Lord God, we, we see ourselves as less than created in your image. But Father God, you put us on this earth, Lord, to have relationship. Lord, you put us on this earth in jobs and careers, with professions, with talents, Lord God, to do your will, Lord God, to serve you and to serve others. And Father, we just pray that we could see ourselves as unique sons and daughters that you desire to have relationship with today, that our relationship would be changed today, Lord God, because of the power of your word. We thank you and praise you, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. So I want to be in a bunch of different verses today, and they're all designed to get us to understand that the entire word of God, all of this book, points to Jesus, points to one person. And Jesus wants a personal relationship with us. He wants to be Lord as well as Savior. <clears throat> and the word of God can instruct us in many ways. We can do verse by verse, which we do almost exclusively here at Harvest Church. We can look you know, at the whole picture, back up a little bit further and go, why did God tell us the same story over and over again in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the Psalms? He's trying to make a point. So the title of my message today is Why Did God Roll Away the Stone? So we're going to talk... <clears throat> We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus and why did God roll away the stone. So this message um, became a burden on my heart a few weeks before Easter. Um, as you might recall, Steve had been battling um, illness. He'd been sick a lot. He'd been doing memorial services, traveling here and there. And um, I just had a thought before a couple weeks before Easter, what if he can't preach? You know, there's going to be hundreds of people in the park and he's going to look around and say, you, <laughs> would you like to volunteer? So I thought, well, I should probably get ready. Maybe he's going to ask me. So I prepared what I thought were, you know, started making ideas, but nothing, nothing solid. And then I said, okay, well, I'm just going to put out a fleece. You ever do that? You ever just like say, hey, if this, then that, you know, like I'm going to read Judges, Gideon 6, and say, hey, I'm going to put this fleece out there, and if it's you, then these things are going to happen. So my fleece was Steve's going to ask me. He's just going to flat up call and say, I can't do it, can you preach? Well, Steve never asked me. He preached on Sunday, on Easter Sunday, and I thought, okay, I'm off the hook. <clears throat> so I put my message away, put my notes in my journal away, and then it, it stayed a burden and, um, for a couple of weeks. And then at some point, I just thought, you know, Steve and I haven't talked for a while. I'm just gonna call him up and just catch up. And lo and behold, he calls me the same day I have that thought. And is that a coincidence? Or is that God maybe trying to point something out to me. So I get off the phone, Steve doesn't ask. So I don't have to be up here and be nervous for 45 minutes. Um, but the next day I, I thought, okay, you know, if I'm going to use Gideon's example, at some point Gideon just had to say yes. Gideon had to say, uh, ask everybody who's afraid to go home. Okay, Lord. Well, Wow. Two-thirds of my army just left, Lord. Take them down to the river and see how they drink and tell those people to go home. You know, at some point, you just have to say yes. 
So I called Steve back up, gave him some background, and here I am. <laughs> but the point, the point of the story in, in Gideon um, was that God wanted to be glorified. He didn't want Gideon to go down there with twice as big an army and then say, because of my power, he wanted to be glorified. So why did, why did God roll away the stone on the day of Jesus' resurrection? Why not just appear to his followers? He wasn't trapped behind that rock. He wasn't like, you know, oh, I hope I can get out. You know, so why did he roll away the stone? So we're going to look at Matthew 26 and Luke 24 and read a little bit of the account. <clears throat> so Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. That might be some advertising right there, huh? There was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear, the guards trembled and became like dead men. These are Roman guards, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place, the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And in Luke 24, a little bit different version. <clears throat> Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here but has risen. Remember how God told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary and the mother of James and the other women and with, who with them told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So God rolled away that stone. The very first sign to everybody involved with an earthquake and angels and the most powerful nation on earth felt like dead men in front of it because he wanted to say in a very loud, practical way, he is risen, our Lord is risen. His followers did not show up at the tomb with expectation to find a risen Lord, but to anoint a dead prophet. So a little bit further into the story, we have Jesus. He's walking along. He's got two disciples going to the road to Emmaus, and they're talking about all the stuff that's going on. And Jesus walks up and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they said to him, we're talking concerning Jesus of Nazareth. This is from Luke 24. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Let's skip down to verse 27. So this is Jesus now. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning him. And they said to each other in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? So Jesus, let's remember, Jesus can open up the scriptures for us too. When we're trying to figure out what does that verse mean, we just have to ask. So, when Jesus is walking along, he's saying, hey, the whole, all of the Old Testament points to me. All of it points to me. <clears throat> so 
So our Heavenly Father wanted to make it very clear Jesus was risen. When the stone was rolled away, it was obvious that good things had happened. When you come up to an empty grave and you're prepared to anoint somebody that's passed away and they're not there, you have to wonder, so what happened? Oh, well, I've got this angelic being telling me what happened. That's a pretty big, a pretty big billboard for those folks. So we're going to look at another, another story where the stone was rolled away. So this is the story of Lazarus, and it's found in John 11. And verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not, has he not told us if we believe, we can see the glory of God? We can see it in our own lives. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So the stones rolled away. Lazarus has returned to life, but that's not what they were expecting. Martha told us what they were expecting. It's going to smell really bad when you roll that stone away. So sometimes there's a stone in place of something where God wants to show his glory, but we're afraid, and we don't want to let him roll that stone away. So I told you at the beginning that I was going to ask you to imagine with me today. We practice with that elephant joke. So I want you to imagine your heart is a house with lots of rooms. You've got an way, you've got a long hallway, you've got a living room. You know, imagine it however you'd like to imagine it, but it's got lots of rooms. And you've asked Jesus to come into your heart and to be Lord and Savior. So I've only got a couple points today, but I want to focus on the Lord part of that statement. Is he going to be Lord? And when we ask Jesus in, he does not ask us to clean up our lives because by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast. So we welcome Jesus in with joy, <clears throat> and after a time we show him around our heart, we're imagining as a house. We take him to the living room, the kitchen, and we take him to the bedroom where we sleep. <clears throat> but sometimes when you have a guest over and they come unexpected, you kind of go, you know, come on in, but well, I, don't, I don't want you to see in this room, because that room's where I just stuff things, right? You know, I don't want you, you know, I haven't cleaned the bathroom yet. You know, we close some doors. But this is Jesus in our heart, and he wants to be Lord and Savior. <clears throat> so let us also imagine that, that Jesus, our Lord, would like access to everything behind those doors. Okay, just like when he raised Lazarus from the dead in his own resurrection, if we will allow him in, he'll bring restoration. Okay, so we're going to talk about a couple of doors. I know they were doors... They were doors in my heart at some point in my life. Hopefully, you know, they've all been removed. Um, but sometimes God has to remind you of things. We'll talk about that at the end here. But the first door might be labeled unforgiveness. <clears throat> sometimes you excuse yourself and you spend time in there. And when you come out, it's always hard then to re-engage with your Lord because you just spent time in your unforgiveness room. 
But, but Jesus is a gentleman. He's not gonna leave and he's not gonna come into that room unless you invite him in. He has to be invited in. So remember there was a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He'd been laying there for a long time. What was Jesus' question to him when they encountered each other? Anybody? Do you want to be healed? So I'm laying here at this pool for a long time. I'm obviously broken. And Jesus comes along and asks, do you want to be healed? Because sometimes we just, you know, we just get stuck. It's familiar. My brokenness is familiar. So this, this man had been laying there for a long time. But Jesus still asked him, do you want to be healed? There was a blind man sitting on a road to Jericho. Jesus is walking along and this blind man is crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So they call him over. And what does Jesus ask the blind man? What can I do for you? And the blind man has to tell him, I'd like my sight restored. So Jesus is a gentleman. But if we hide ourselves behind stone doors because we fear exposure of what's inside, Jesus won't come in until we invite him. Martha did not want the stone rolled away from her brother's tomb. She told Jesus, he's been dead for four days. It's not gonna smell good. So I want you to ask yourself a question. Is there a door in your heart? How long have we been hiding behind that door? How long have we said, okay, Jesus, you can have access to all this, but not here. I'm not ready for here. So unforgiveness, I know in, in my life, I, I think it's nameless, right? I, I'm unf- I don't want to forgive somebody in my past, somebody in my future, maybe myself. We think it's nameless, faceless thing. But it's, abs- it's actually affects a relationship with a real person. Unforgiveness affects that relationship. And we can think that we're not changed by it, but we are. Our Lord and Savior was hanging on the cross and people were standing and jeering at him and he forgave them from that position. How much more so should we? Hey, the Lord's Prayer has a verse. Forgive us our trespasses even as we forgive those who trespass against us. Even as is another way to say in the same way. So when I say the Lord's Prayer, I'm saying forgive other, forgive me in the same way I forgive others. So if I'm unable to forgive others, then I'm actually standing in the way of feeling forgiven from my Lord and Savior. I'm standing in the way of that peace that can come with that forgiveness. Jesus wants into this room and we need to allow him to be Lord and judge of the event and the circumstances. So you might ask yourself, why? Why do I have to let Jesus into that room? It's gonna smell bad. I mean, you know, we've all had rooms that we're like, I don't wanna go in there. That's, that's where I just stash stuff. You know, and I think in our hearts, we can be the same way. So Jesus wants to get in that room. And, he t- and Paul told us in Corinthians, a verse that <clears throat> I know I go to quite often for various reasons, but it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So if I pause right there for a minute, I have to ask myself, why is he the God of comfort? Because I'm gonna need comforted. He left his comforter behind, right? So there's gonna be things that happen in my life that are gonna need the heavenly father to come in and comfort. But it goes on. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that there may be, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. So now I get comforted and it comes with a responsibility. 
I can comfort somebody who's lost a family member. I can comfort somebody who's lost a job or had a marriage go get broken or had whatever condition. God uses me then to bring that comfort to, to other people. So for homework, I wonder if I steal uh, Jeremy's lesson from a couple of weeks ago. So for some homework, read Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. God takes unforgiveness very seriously. And if we can deal with our unforgiveness, then we are right there. We are right there close to the heart of, of our Father. So second door, second door to imagine. <clears throat> We're still in the hallway of your heart. So this room might be your finance room. We go in here, we plan for retirement, we pay our bills. And now that Jesus is in the house, we consider tithes and offerings. Because we've read about that in the Bible, we might hear about it in a sermon, we might hear testimonies. But a tithe is simply 10% of our income. An offering is an amount above that to various kingdom work the Lord leads you. So the Lord leads you because he's your Lord, right? And the New Testament tells us we can hear his voice. So we can follow our Lord whose voice we can hear. He might tell us to sponsor a child through compassion or give to missionaries or support Lifeline. But there'll be something and God will lead you to that. But today I want to focus on the tithe and putting Jesus, our Lord, in the first position. Because isn't that what Lord means? First position, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's not my chair, that's his throne. Let's look at the first accounts of bringing a tithe and first fruits in the Bible. So it's a story we're all familiar with. It's a story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, that's kind of an important verse there because there is evidently some, still some conversation going on. They've been kicked out of the garden but the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what stands out in the commentaries on this subject is the difference in the timing of, of the offerings that were brought. Cain brought his offering over the course of time and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. So does our Lord, I'll ask this question again, does our Lord desire to be in first position? He tells us in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So for homework, you can go back and read all the list of things, but it's all the things we all worry about, right? My kids don't have shoes yet. I need housing. I have a health issue. I've got a job issue. Those are all the things he's talking about in Matthew 6. Those are all the things that will be added to us if we seek the kingdom of God first. So does it take faith to wait until 10 lambs are born to give one to the Lord? Or does it take faith to give the first lamb? So it's about a heart condition. Am I going to honor God and trust him? 
And if I give the first lamb, I'm going to trust him. The only difference between their two offerings was the timing. Cain brought his offering over the course of time. It doesn't tell us, did he make sure he had enough? Did he make sure his family was fed and, and all dealt with, and then now I'll take this portion and give it to God? Or did he say, I will trust? <clears throat> I don't think he said, I will trust. Okay, some people say that tithes and offerings are an Old Testament, Old Covenant practice, not for today. But Cain and Abel were years before the law, and but evidently there was some instruction from God concerning offerings, and there was no account of Cain asking why. What did I do wrong? Because evidently he knew. <clears throat> he knew the difference between his offering and his brother's. And the only other thing mentioned there is a warning that sin is crouching at the door. So the book of Malachi says a lot about tithing, but I'm only going to read one verse, and that'd be some more homework for you to go back and read um, the book of Malachi. It's a, sh- it's a short read, but verse 6 of chapter 3 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. So in the context of that, God is saying, I don't change. I made a promise and I keep my promise, even when you're unfaithful. So when we're being told to put God first, right in the beginning of the book in Genesis, Jesus tells us over again, and right in the middle, there's a whole big long exchange in Malachi on why we should put God first, about why we should honor him with our tithes and offerings and our first fruit. So when Jesus our Lord comes into our finance room, is his portion, his, is his portion the first portion or is it the last one? Does he get the first lamb or do we wait until we have 10 and then give him one? Do we ask him if he desires us to give above the tithe for kingdom work? Do we live in a marketplace where we ask him, to, is there someone here whose need I can meet? Do we trust our Lord? Or is there fear living in this room also? The rest of Malachi has a promise similar to Matthew 6. Our Lord promises to pour out a blessing and open wide the windows of heaven. So sometimes we'll read that verse and go, well, that's, that's great. I could really use a big raise. I'm having financial issues. But, but when you recognize that you're a steward, <clears throat> this is where the heart issue comes in. Excuse me. <clears throat> when you recognize you're a steward, and you have to ask yourself, can I trust the king? So if I'm asking him to be Lord and my savior, I have to say, I'm gonna trust the king. And if I trust the king, I know he's gonna take care of his steward. So if I steward what I've given according to his word, I'm gonna be taken care of. That's, what, that's the point of Matthew 6. That's the point in Malachi is trust your king. Jesus our Lord and Savior does not need our resources. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What he desires is our heart, to have no stone door of separation. So when we're watching all these kids say, you know, what they loved about their dads. If we can put ourselves, you know, put yourselves on that film and start telling your heavenly father, what do you love about your heavenly father? What does he love? He loves when we spend time with him. He loves when we follow his word. He loves to do fellowship with us. Okay, as I get ready to close, we're going to just take a peek into the book of Revelation. I know you guys have all been waiting for the book of Revelation, but you're just going to get a couple of verses. So in Revelation 3, 14 and 20, 
This is a letter to the church of Laodicea. This is Jesus talking to believers. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And down to verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So uh, not my skill, but another uh, pastor talked about the, the verb that's used there. It's a continuous process. Jesus is always standing at the door and knocking because he always wants more of our heart. So he wants us to trust him as a good king, that we're stewards. We can trust him with our finances. He wants, him to tr- he wants us to trust him with unforgiveness that we're, that we're struggling with because he wants to heal that part of our heart. So he's standing at the door knocking, knocking, and the door that separates his grace from the pain we have suffered in a fallen world. So sometimes I know for myself, um, you just have to imagine is the, or ask yourself, and I'll touch more on this in a minute, but you have to ask yourself, Lord, is there something blocking your peace from coming into a situation? And sometimes it's a stone door, and we have to say, Lord, come through that door. His disciples said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened up the scriptures to us? What did Jesus do in that conversation? They already knew what happened, so he told them what happened had to happen. He explained to them, because what happened happened, him being crucified, we now had a relationship with Heavenly Father. That didn't exist before. So he gave them comfort. And what did they do? If you read a little bit further, it says they sat down and said, did our hearts not burn within us? And then they turned around and ran back to Jerusalem, several miles away, and offered comfort. That's how the process is supposed to work. We give our pain to Jesus, he comforts us and equips us to comfort others. So Jesus wrote these words in Revelation to believers. He's standing at the door of our heart the doors that separate his grace from the pain we've suffered in a fallen world. We're made in the image of a glorious God and we've invited his son to be Lord and Savior. That should result in Jesus having an invitation to every room in our heart. He's got the key to all the doors. He knows the combination to all the safes. He has the car keys. He is the Lord of every place in our heart. So I'd like the the worship team to come up as we get ready to close out here. So as we close in prayer, take a moment and imagine, is there any room in your heart you haven't let Jesus into? Is there a person that's bound in unforgiveness? Is there an event in your past that still causes you to react in a way that you regret later? An addiction that trips you up when you're fearful, lonely, or bored? An inner vow you made to yourself in anger or frustration or fear? So I'm just going to touch on that one just just briefly. And and as I was preparing this message, um, God dealt with me uh, on an inner vow that I made. So some, I guess 1981, somebody can do the math, tell me how long ago that was. My dad passed away, um, didn't survive open heart surgery. And God pointed me to a memory of me sitting at a kitchen table and saying, this is never going to happen to me. I am never 
going to let myself get overweight, out of shape, and have an issue with my heart. So a couple weeks ago, lo and behold, I have an issue with my heart. And I'm scheduled for a procedure sometime in the next month. Um, not a big deal. But people were praying for me. But, at the, but because I had this inner vow that I was unaware of, I did not feel peace. I had zero peace. I had people praying for me and laying hands on me, and then I'd go home and go, well, I should, write my, uh, I should start writing a letter to my grandkids and say, sorry, Dad, Grandpa passed away because, you know, I should make sure my trust is up to date. You know, and those are all good things to do. I mean, absolutely write letters to your grandkids, but I didn't have peace because I had this place in my heart, this stone door where I said, God, you're not coming in here. I have control over this. I'm gonna control my weight, my cholesterol, my blood sugar, all these things. But I'm not in control. I'm not in control. And when I trust my king, the peace comes back. When I break that vow, the peace comes back. So when, if you're looking and you have a place where there's no peace or you have a situation where you're like, why am I reacting this way? That's God saying, here, let me bring grace to that situation, here. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, this was Adam's response to his heavenly father calling his name. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Jesus knows what's behind the door. He desires to be let in. Adam heard his heavenly father calling his name and he hid himself. Jesus is standing at the door of our hearts. Sometimes we're hiding behind there. So let's not hide from our Lord a day longer. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just desire, Lord, to give you access to all of the pain that we've suffered in this fallen world, Lord God, so that we can offer comfort to those around us, Lord God. You made us to be salt and light, Lord God. You brought us to this world for a purpose, Father, to serve you, to walk according to your will, to walk in peace and joy, just like these kids in, these, in the video this morning. They just want to spend time with their dad. They just want to spend time with their dad. Father God, I just pray that we would all have a desire just to spend time with you, to be in your word, to feel your joy, to say thank you for your gorgeous creation that points our hearts to you. We pray that we would be changed today because we encountered you today, Lord God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.